This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome to the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice podcast, your bi-weekly source of news, views, and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS, who has had no influence on the content or choice of faculty. Once again, I'm James Bannister. And I'm Emma Phillips. In today's episode, we're going to focus on the relationship between pregnancy and diabetes, including both cases of pre-existing diabetes and cases of gestational diabetes. This week, we'll be speaking to Professor Rudy Billows, who will be providing his advice on treatment strategies for coexisting diabetes and pregnancy. As always, do feel free to skip ahead to this expert interview if you're already familiar with the topic. Pregnancy presents challenging scenarios for the diabetes care team. For those with pre-existing diabetes, pregnancy requires profound changes in disease management, including different glycemic targets and changes in therapeutic approaches. In addition, some people can experience a temporary state of hyperglycemia during the course of their pregnancy, a condition referred to as gestational diabetes mellitus, or GDM for short. In their 2017 review in Expert Opinion on Drug Metabolism and Toxicology, Hedrington and Davis explained that throughout a normal pregnancy, a mother will gradually become less sensitive to insulin. This degree of insulin resistance normally occurs naturally between weeks 24 and 28. This is due to the developing fetus as its requirements for glucose increase. As described by Sonagara et al. in 2014, in order to meet these glucose requirements, the mother will begin to use less of their blood glucose, relying more on energy from fats rather than carbohydrates, allowing more glucose to remain in the blood available for the fetus. However, in some pregnancies, the mother experiences more severe degrees of insulin insensitivity, causing blood glucose levels to rise to concentrations that can adversely affect the fetus and the pregnancy. This is termed GDM, but the diagnostic levels of blood glucose that define it remain controversial. GDM is diagnosed following an oral glucose tolerance test, or OGTT. There is no consensus on the screening criteria and glycemic thresholds for the diagnosis of GDM. Following the HAPO study, criteria were set based upon an odds ratio of 1.75 associated with four adverse outcomes – These were later adopted by the WHO and some national bodies such as the ADA and SIGN. Canada adopted criteria based on odds ratios of equal to or greater than 2.0 and NICE used a clinical cost-effectiveness analysis to come up with different criteria. Moreover, some countries have a targeted approach to screening, whereas others propose screening all pregnancies. The different thresholds are detailed in Zhu and Zhang's review published in Current Diabetes Report 2016. We'll also be discussing this with Professor Billows in this week's expert interview. Another consideration for patients with GDM, however diagnosed, is specific antenatal and postnatal care. While many patients will return to normal glucose tolerance after their pregnancy, all are at an increased risk for developing overt type 2 diabetes in the future. NICE guidance recommends screening for abnormal glucose tolerance using HbA1c tests performed at least 12 weeks postpartum, whilst the ADA recommend an oral glucose tolerance test 4 to 12 weeks postpartum and annual screenings for type 2 diabetes thereafter. Clinically relevant insulin resistance, and subsequently hyperglycemia, during pregnancy is associated with serious adverse outcomes for both mother and child. As described by Kaja et al. in 2008, a mother with chronic, uncontrolled hyperglycemia is at higher risk of preeclampsia, while their child can experience respiratory distress syndrome, neonatal hypoglycemia, 
neonatal jaundice, and even stillbirth. Additionally, there is an increased risk of macrosomia, that is, excessive fetal growth, which can cause complications for the delivery, including the potential need for operative delivery and increased risk for maternal morbidity. For those with pre-existing type 1 and type 2 diabetes, pregnancy can also have additional implications that require specific management. In 2006, Neil Senatal conducted an observational study that indicated a direct link between elevations in HbA1c during the first trimester of pregnancy and an increased risk of diabetic embryopathy, including major congenital anomaly, early and late pregnancy loss and stillbirth. ADA and NICE guidelines therefore recommend achieving an HbA1c level below 48 minimals per mole or 6.5% in old units prior to conception. ADA guidelines go on to recommend an ideal target below 42 millimoles per mole, equivalent to 6.0%. Due to these stringent targets, ADA guidelines recommend educating all of those of childbearing age with diabetes on the risks of conceiving above these HbA1c thresholds, particularly where pregnancies are unplanned. NICE specifically recommends not considering pregnancy if the HbA1c is equal to or greater than 86 millimoles per mole or 10%. So we've briefly summarised the relationship between diabetes and pregnancy and the risks of not achieving glycemic control. But how exactly should we treat the coexistence of diabetes in pregnancy? Today we're joined by Professor Rudy Billows, Dean of Clinical Affairs at Newcastle University Faculty of Medical Sciences. Let's begin with today's first question. There is conflicting guidance on the diagnostic thresholds for GDM. Could you comment on how this came to be? Well, that's a very good question, and and it's fundamental to understanding uh, the condition of gestational diabetes. Um, Some years ago, a major study called HAPO uh, was published, uh, and this demonstrated very clearly that there was a linear relationship between maternal blood glucose levels and serious uh, perinatal and fetal and pregnancy outcomes. And because the relationship is linear, it means that the definition of gestational diabetes has to be somewhat arbitrary. Uh, It all depends where you draw the line. After the HAPO study was published, many of the investigators got together and they looked at um, three outcomes of the study which were felt to be of importance. And after a a wide discussion, came up with a consensus statement that the definition of gestational diabetes should relate to an odds ratio of 1.75 or more for each of these three uh, outcomes of interest. Uh, Now, there was no cost effectiveness or outcome data or randomized clinical trial data or anything to support this. This was a consensus statement which came out from a lot of experts working in the field. Now, when uh, these criteria, um, by the way, have been called the IADPSG or uh, International Association of Diabetes and Pregnancy Advisory Group criteria, and they were adopted by the WHO in 2013. Um, When we looked at the data when we were uh, uh, rewriting or revisiting the NICE guidance, uh, we did some careful modelling looking at cost and clinical effectiveness 
of the various thresholds for the diagnosis of GDM uh, to see if we could get uh, a, a better steer uh, on, on or, or better guidance, uh, some more substantial guidance rather than just consensus um, on what would be uh, the, best, uh, uh, the best levels of blood glucose in the mother. And we looked at cost effectiveness, but we also looked at clinical impact um, on the mother and also numbers of women that you would need to identify, we would need to treat, uh, how we should screen, what criteria we should use for screening, etc. Um, and we came up with slightly different um, uh, thresholds from the uh, IAD, PSG and WHO group. Um, now, they came up with a, a fasting blood glucose of 5.1 in the mother and a two-hour value of 8.5 millimoles per litre. Uh, NICE guidance came up with 5.6 millimoles per litre fasting and 7.8 two hours after a, a 75 gram oral glucose tolerance test. And we came to those criteria based on cost effectiveness um, using ICES and qualies, and also looking at clinical effectiveness. For example, we showed that if you move from our criteria um, of a fasting glucose of 5.6 to the IAD PSG criteria of 5.1, you would screen probably, or identify rather, probably another 150 women with GDM, but prevent only one case of uh, shoulder dystocia. Uh, and the cost effectiveness of that meant that um, you would double the cost of every case of GDM that you identified uh, for such a minimal uh, clinical benefit. So it was using those uh, criteria, and we outlined them in much more detail in a paper we published in BMG Open a few years ago, uh, that led us to our criteria. Now, that doesn't mean to say that our criteria are right. Clearly, if you use the IAD PSG criteria, you will identify a lot more women with GDM and you will pick up one or two more cases uh, of pregnancy complications, which you might be able to prevent. Um, but the cost of doing that um, is, is very high. And given a finite health budget, if you put the costs in that, then obviously they've got to come from somewhere else. And, and it's getting that balance right that's really uh, important. And that's true not just for the UK, but globally, because the numbers of women that you would identify using IAD, PSG or WHO criteria are enormous. Um, and yet we don't have solid clinical uh, data from RCT or, 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 or other evidence that intervening in these women is really going to produce a significant benefit. So um, that's the basis of the NICE guidance and why there is a discrepancy globally. Even in the USA, um, uh, professional bodies can't agree. For example, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology still use or recommend a two-stage um, uh, 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 screening and diagnostic approach with different cr criteria from the American Diabetes Association. Um, Canada has adopted an odds ratio of 2.0, not 1.75 for the HAPO outcomes of interest. And so when you look at it globally, there is a huge difference. And there's no um, right answer here. You just have to go with what 
your analysis and what your cost benefits and, and clinical benefit analysis uh, comes up with. Uh, I hope that makes sense. It's a rather long answer to the question, but I, I hope it explains why there is so much controversy and difference of view um, over this uh, 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 area. No, definitely. And thank you for providing such a detailed response. But in considering all of this, do you have any specific advice for healthcare professionals on how to diagnose cases of GDM and what to do in perhaps more borderline cases? Um, well, I, I don't know that we can talk about borderline cases. I think we, we have to either adopt one set of criteria or another. Um, and the choice of the criteria that one adopts are uh, it is largely down to um, well, providers uh, in terms of cost and, and, and funding. Uh, the current guidance uh, for NHS England is to follow NICE guidance for uh, um, diagnostic criteria, but I know that um, uh, several colleagues around the country would prefer to adopt the IAD PSG uh, WHO criteria. That is clearly something they would need to make the case with their, their local CCGs and, 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 and healthcare funders. Um, there's no wrong or right answer here, but at no time did IAD PSG or WHO undertake anything like uh, the detailed cost and clinical effective analysis which we did uh, using the raw data uh, from several uh, sets uh, in both in the UK and elsewhere, including the HAPO data sets from Australia and the UK. So I feel comfortable with the recommendations that NICE made um, uh, because I think they are soundly based on, 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 on analysis and data. What I think we do need um, are, are more uh, uh, RCT data comparing and contrasting, if you like, using the current NICE criteria and the IAD PSG criteria. I think it would be entirely ethical to undertake such a study and also really help clear up some of the issues um, around GDM treatment because none of the trial data that we've got have used any of the criteria that are currently advocated, whether it is NICE, IAD PSG, Canada or, or anywhere else on the planet for that matter. Thank you so much. Moving on then to the treatment of established GDM. What approaches would you recommend in terms of both lifestyle approaches and pharmacotherapy? Um, well, there are two aspects here. Uh, if we're sticking specifically to gestational diabetes, GDM, um, then uh, initial guidance is, is lifestyle, and that involves a dietary uh, modification, trying to avoid uh, 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 rapidly absorbed carbohydrate, um, and uh, 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 although th when we reviewed the dietary uh, evidence in pregnancy um, uh, for GDM, actually the, the quality of the evidence is not that great. Um, and so all we can do is really go on, on best uh, uh, advice. And currently that means starchy carbohydrate rather than rapidly absorbed carbohydrate, trying to avoid uh, fat. It, it, it's largely healthy dietary advice as you would have in the, the non-pregnant situation. In terms of exercise, there are some studies of, of various forms of exercise in pregnancy. Again, they're not a huge great quality um, but uh, 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 regular exercise and many mums of course are pushing the pram around with other children and so forth all of that sort of exercises is, is very good 
um, uh, clearly very vigorous exercise in pregnancy becomes difficult for all sorts of practical reasons. Um, but in early pregnancy, um, uh, light jogging and so forth uh, uh, is perfectly fine. So the lifestyle um, evidence is, is somewhat limited, but it largely uh, uh, concordant with, with the non-pregnant situation. In terms of treatments, well, um, there is a difference here. Um, NICE guidance suggests metformin as first-line therapy, and if the blood glucose is, is particularly uh, high at diagnosis, um, then, uh, then you start metformin straight away without waiting for lifestyle advice. Um, on the continent, there is some uh, uh, concern about um, long-term effects of metformin on the baby and the developing infant. Uh, there are no data uh, other than animal data, uh, and that is, again, fairly weak. So we felt confident and comfortable recommending metformin with the NICE guidance. After metformin, again, there's controversy. There was a study uh, published some years ago using glibenclamide in women who didn't like the idea of insulin injections, and it seemed to be safe, uh, but the, the uh, benefits have not been reproduced by subsequent studies. However, in NICE guidance, glibenclamide is still offered as an option, although in my clinical experience, I've not found it be, to be particularly effective. So after metformin, you're really down to insulin. And then you've got a problem to decide whether it's fasting hyperglycemia, which is the issue, in which case perhaps overnight medium-acting insulin would be the first choice. But if it's postprandial blood glucose, which is high, then obviously prandial rapid-acting insulin would be the next line of, of therapy. Postpartum, well, most women with gestational diabetes, you stop all therapies because the majority will return to normal glucose tolerance. Um, so uh, what we uh, do locally and uh, what's recommended in NICE is for blood glucose monitoring for uh, uh, some days postpartum uh, after all treatments have been stopped. And if uh, glucose levels remain within the normal range, then uh, uh, um, stop doing that and then do a postpartum check at around about three months or more. Um, but for those women who continue to need treatment, they then really ha have got type 2 diabetes. So um, they no longer have GDM. They should follow the type 2 diabetes um, recommendations. So I hope that answers your question. Again, it's a rather long answer, I'm afraid. That's perfectly fine. And just to round off this discussion, you touched upon type 2 diabetes. Perhaps where this is established or where a pregnant person develops type 2 diabetes, are there any specific antihypoglycemic agents that should be avoided, both during the pregnancy and when breastfeeding? Well, most of the newer therapies don't have any good data. Um, and the manufacturers, um, when you look at the uh, information sheet, say, best avoid, and that's largely because there, there are few data. Metformin is probably okay. Sulfonylurea is definitely not if you're breastfeeding. Um, so really, um, it's insulin if, if you've got significant hyperglycemia in the postpartum stage, uh, plus or minus metformin. Excellent. Thank you so much for all your time today. This brings us to the end of today's time. To summarise, the natural physiology of pregnancy includes increased insulin resistance. In some individuals, this can lead to a temporary state of diabetes called GDM. Across all types of diabetes, uncontrolled hyperglycemia can cause serious complications of pregnancy, 
As such, any pregnant person with diabetes should aim for an HbA1c level of below 48 millimoles per mole or ideally below 42. Blood glucose should be controlled using insulin-based methods for the duration of the pregnancy and some glucose lowering agents should be avoided both during pregnancy and when breastfeeding. In addition, maybe you'd like to hear more from us at Diabetes Knowledge and Practice. If you haven't done so already, please do subscribe to the podcast using your favorite app. And if you found this episode useful, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a review or tweeting us at DKI Practice on Twitter. Thank you so much for joining, and we look forward to joining you again soon.